I have this little sign that my friend Gail Stockamp gave me years ago. And it's a constant reminder to me that I am living my life in the midst of a battle. I have it hanging up on my office wall, and this is what it says. Be the kind of woman that when your feet hit the ground each morning, the devil says, oh, crap, she's up. (laughs) I love it. It's such a reminder that we are living in the middle of a battle, and it makes a difference how we live our lives. Even in the mundane circumstances of life, we have so many challenges, don't we? Maybe you're feeling that battle today. Maybe even before your feet hit the ground this morning, you were feeling the battle. Maybe it started while you were sleeping. Maybe for some of you, you've got babies who are waking you up in the middle of the night. I was disturbed in the middle of the night to care for my son, Adam, who needed attention in the middle of the night. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's sick children that keep disturb your sleep or come into your bed in the middle of the night with nightmares. Maybe your husband snores really loudly and disturbs your sleep. Or maybe you've got raging hormones and those hot flashes just keep waking you up. Sometimes we feel the battle even before we wake up in the day and our feet hit the ground. And then you know how it goes, right? You start your day, and your husband snaps at you on his way out the door to go to work. You're walking through your house, and you put your foot down in cat vomit. Your cat, of course, will conveniently deposit cat vomit on your white carpet, not on a place that you can clean it up. Then let's say you go to your laundry room, and that load of laundry that's been sitting wet in the washer now can't go into the dryer because your dryer's not working. And you know in Oregon it takes about five minutes for laundry to mold. You then go out in the garage, and you find that your tire's flat, and you forgot to renew your 3A membership last month. Later in the day, maybe you go to the grocery store, and the clerk looks at you with a warm smile and says, Oh, honey, when are you due? And you're not pregnant. The mail comes later with bills that are far more than money is available to pay. Your child's report card comes in the mail, and he's got an F in P-E. Your dog digs up the flowers you've newly planted and tracks mud all over your white carpet. And then you go to bed and realize a headache has set in. Anybody ever have a day like that? (laughs) We have those days once in a while, and here's the thing. You crawl into bed at the end of the day, and you remember what you're learning in your Ephesians lesson. You're a daughter of the king. You're a princess. Your identity is in Christ. And you begin to go, wait a minute. It doesn't feel like I'm a daughter of the king. It doesn't feel like I'm a princess. It feels like I'm in the midst of an epic battle. The Bible informs us that there is an invisible battle raging behind the facade of this world, and although we can't always see it, we feel it, we experience it, it's palatable to us. Life is full of conflict and struggle. So Paul is concluding his letter to the Ephesians by pulling back the curtain, the spiritual curtain, just a little bit, and showing us the reality of this battle that's raging all around us, because He wants us to understand why it is that we struggle so acutely in this world and in our flesh. And he's going to tell us the reason we struggle in the world and in the flesh is because of the devil. The devil is at work. And so he's telling us we need to be equipped with the armor of God so we can stand firm in this battle and we can claim the victory that is ours in Christ. So today we're looking at Ephesians 6, and we're looking at verses 10 through 17, and we're going to ask three really important questions. The first question is, who is our enemy? 
The second question is, what is his strategy? And we'll find that in verses 10 through 13. And then the third question is, how can we stand firm in the Lord? And Paul's going to tell us in verses 14 through 17. And what we're going to learn today is that with God's power and with God's armor, we can stand firm through the battles of life. And isn't that exactly the encouragement we need to hear today? Whatever your battle is, whatever is going on in your life, you need to know that with Christ's armor and with God's power, you can stand firm in the midst of that battle, and so can I. So let's talk first about who is our enemy. Who is our enemy? The devil and his demons. This isn't the first time that Paul has warned us about our enemies. If you remember back in Ephesians 2, he actually mentioned three different enemies that we have to our spiritual life. He talked about the world, which is that system of society that is opposed to God and particularly centers or likes to cater to the lust of the flesh or the pride of life. He talked about the flesh, which is that old nature that he's been telling us that we need to put off, that old nature. So that's the flesh he's been talking to us about, reminding us that that it's impossible for us to please God in the flesh. Um, And then he's talked about the devil as being a real personal enemy who's often called the prince of the power of the air, and he was accompanied by many fallen angels called demons. Now, it's interesting because the Bible has so much to say about Satan or the devil, and yet do you know that in a recent survey, 50% of people who proclaim to be born-again believers, Bible-believing believers, say that they do not believe Satan or the devil are real beings, but, but actually personifications of evil. So they actually don't believe that Satan and his demons are, are real living beings, but that the, the term is just something that's used to talk about evil in general. Um, a symbol of evil is what they say he is. And so it's important that we know and believe what the Bible has to say about the devil because one of his greatest tactics is to deceive and especially deceive people into thinking that he isn't actually a real living being. And so... If we don't believe that he is a real living being, then we won't understand the real threat that he poses to our lives. So it's important we look at Scripture and know what does Scripture have to say about him. In Scripture, we find that he has a whole bunch of names. So he's called the devil, which means the accuser. And what he does is he accuses people before the throne of God all day long. He is before God constantly accusing us for our sin and saying, how could you forgive her for that? And of course, we know that Jesus is the one who stands between us and the Father and has made the perfect sacrifice for our sins and set us free from accusation, right? Satan means adversary, so that means that he is God's enemy. He's also called the tempter, the murderer, and the liar. In fact, in John 8, 44, this is what Jesus said about the devil. It's that he said, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He is compared in scripture to a lion, a serpent, and an angel of light. In Matthew, he's referred to as um, Beelzebul in Matthew 10.25. In Matthew 13.19, he's referred to as the evil one. And in Revelation 12.9, he's referred to as the dragon. 
He's also called the God of this age because he has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. And that's spoken of in 2 Corinthians 4.4. Satan's original name was Lucifer, son of the morning, which is spoken of in Isaiah 14. But then everything changed when he was cast out of heaven because of his desires to sit on the throne of God because of his pride. So this is what the Bible tells us about his story. We know that Satan was accompanied by a large angelic force. Actually, one-third of the angels accompanied Satan in his rebellion when he was cast out of heaven then. In Luke 10, 18, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from lightning from heaven. In 2 Peter 2, 4, it says, For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Now, Satan is a real, living, terrible enemy, but there are many things he is not. He is not omnipotent like God is. He is not all-powerful. In fact, he and his demons are restrained by the rules of God. Do you realize that Satan is actually the king legalist? He has to follow the rules that God has set forth. He cannot break them. He is bound by what, Satan, what God will permit. Satan is not omnipresent, so he and his demons cannot be everywhere at once. They target particular people and circumstances and can only be present in one situation at a time. He is not omniscient. So he doesn't know the future except as God has already declared it in Scripture. So he knows what we know. He only knows what the Bible has declared. And so, interestingly, unlike humanity, which doesn't believe every word of the Bible, Satan believes every word of the Bible, and Scripture says he actually shudders at the truth of it. He is not orderly. Satan is chaotic. He is nonsensical. There is no morality in evil. There is, he is ruthless, and he is unjust. He is unconventional, and um, he is malicious. He hates the light and loves the darkness, and he uses all of his powers for perversion, destruction, and death. He is also not victorious. He is a defeated enemy. Jesus triumphed over him at the cross, so his future has already been determined. And he is, though he has lost the war, there is still a battle because there is a now and not yet aspect to Christ's triumph over him. The now aspect of it is that believers receive salvation from the penalty of sin and the consequence, which is death, which this is what Satan entered, ushered into the world through the first sin that Adam and Eve committed. There is now, for the believer, triumph over that. Here and now, believers have eternal life and forgiveness. But there is this not yet element to it, as in he is still reigning over this world at this time. Though his end is deemed, he will suffer and be in hell for in eternal punishment. He still has a reign of dominion, but God limits him. So he is still limited by what God will allow him to do. Yet he is the prince of the power of the air on earth to this day. The end of his story has been written. It's in Revelation 20.10, and this is what God tells us about the end of his story. It says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
So you see, Satan knows that his days are numbered. He knows that he has a limited time to have power in this world. And this is why Paul is preparing us for the struggles that we face as God's children who are caught up in this spiritual battle. We changed kingdoms when we believed in Christ. We are no longer under his kingdom on this earth. He is the prince of the power of the world. We changed kingdoms. We now belong to the kingdom of God. We are children of God. We follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So by changing kingdoms, it means we stepped over battle lines. And now we are targets of this, in this war where fiery darts across the lines, and we are on God's side. We're on his team. And we take hits um, in the midst of that battle. The truth is that Satan is a real personal enemy. And if you don't believe this, then if we don't believe this, then we're contending with the key truths of the gospel. Because we see in the gospel that Jesus had a very real, very personal interaction with Satan. And it happened in the wilderness, which we see in Matthew 4. In the wilderness, Satan tempted Jesus to use his divine powers to shortcut God's plan. Jesus, as we know, had the ability to display his divine identity for everyone to know by the use of his supernatural powers. He could have received worship in this moment for just who he is by revealing himself rather than receiving worship and glory for his work on the cross. He could have shortcut the whole process of going to the cross and been glorified if he would have just displayed his powers in the wilderness the way the devil tempted him to do so. So when we look at this story, what we're going to see is how Jesus interacted with a real personal enemy, not a mythological idea. First thing that happens in the wilderness is that we see Satan talking to Jesus, actually having a conversation. There is real interaction between them as Satan is tempting Jesus to turn stones into bread to feed him his hunger. It says in verse 3 that the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus talks back, and he answers, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The second thing that happens is that Satan takes Jesus to a high mountain. Somehow, this is interesting, Jesus, Satan is able to move Jesus. He's able to transport him to another place where he is able to show him the realm of power, which shows us the realm of power that Satan has in Jesus' life. Um, there he then tempts him to throw himself down in verse 5. He says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, notice he quotes scripture to Jesus, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, Quoting scripture back, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then the third thing we see is that when the devil tempts Jesus to make all the kingdoms of the world his own, he does so by saying, if you'll just bow down and worship him, me, he says. If you'll worship, if Jesus would worship the devil, he could make all the kingdoms of the world his own. This happens in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. So three times 
Jesus refutes Satan with scripture, and the final thing that Jesus then says to Satan is, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And notice then that Satan has to obey the authority of God's word. It says the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. So these three evidences for the reality of Satan and his interaction with Jesus are found in the fact that Jesus engages in a real-time conversation with Satan. He is speaking to a real being, not a mythological idea about evil. There is a real person involved here. The second thing is that Satan is able to transport Jesus to a mountaintop location. He is physically moved to another place by his power. So Satan has real powers that even impact Jesus in this moment. And the third thing is that Jesus refutes Satan with scripture and then commands his departure. He speaks authoritatively for him to depart. So what do you believe about Satan and his demons? Do you think it's all mythology? You hear people talk about that. How do you respond when people tell you, oh, it's not real, it's just a mythological idea, or it's a metaphor for evil? Do you agree with Jesus that Satan is a real, living, personal being? It's been said that the devil's most beautiful ruse is to convince us that he doesn't exist. Because if we believe that he doesn't exist, we may be succumbing to one of his greatest wiles as the master of lies and deception. So next we're going to learn some more of his strategy. How does he impact our lives? What is his strategy? We see this in Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Paul tells us that we have to be aware of his schemes. He tells us that like like any military strategist would advise, the best way to get in ready for battle is to know your enemy and know his tactics so that you can plan and be prepared for when those times of battle come. So Paul exhorts us to be strong in the Lord. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. There's only one person who has consistently defeated the devil, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the only one. That's why Paul is telling us that we need to be strong in Christ. We need to be strong in the Lord when we face spiritual battles. Jesus has all the power of heaven and, heaven and earth at his fingertips, and he is standing right next to us. So we don't have to be afraid. Jesus rules. Satan's strategy is so simple, really, because he hasn't changed through all the years. From Genesis to the very end, he has one simple strategy. Satan is not creative like God. He is locked into who he is, and his strategy has remained the same. It's threefold. His first strategy is deception. He likes to twist and distort and masquerade and pervert pervert truth. He's masterful at it. And oftentimes we're so ignorant that we don't see it. We don't understand it. We're blinded by it because that's how good he is. He is so masterful. I was reminded this morning that most lies are 80% true. And it takes a very discerning person to know that little bit of untruth that will make the statement an actual lie. He's so good at that. The other thing that he does is he's a master at accusation. He accuses us, like I said, before the throne of God. But he also accuses us. He fills our own hearts and minds with voices of shame and blame. 
He's that voice that speaks into our head. You're not enough. You're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. God will never forgive you for that sin. He's that voice that whispers these messages into our minds that try to speak against our true identity in Christ. He fosters feelings of despair and maligns our true identity in Christ, which is why I'm so thankful that we have spent so much time this year talking and learning about who we are in Christ. This is one of the truths that we can stand on when the enemy comes at us and whispers these lies into our minds. We can go back to Ephesians 1 and we can recite, and I hope we can memorize and recite, this is who I am in Christ. And you may not speak to me that way. We need to know who we are. The third thing is temptation. And temptation is one of his most clever tactics because he tempts people to two things. He tempts people into faithlessness, which happens when we doubt God and we doubt God's word. And he tempts people to sin, which is what happens when we disobey God and disobey his word. This was his tactic right back in the Garden of Eden. When you remember, he was interfacing with Eve, and he was tempting her to doubt God's word. Did God really say you couldn't eat of all the trees and blah, blah, blah? He was planting seeds of doubt in her, and then he was tempting her to disobey God and disobey his word by actually eating the forbidden fruit. And this has been his tactic all the way through. It doesn't change. This is how he tempts us, to doubt and to disobey He's trying to get us to take matters into our own hands because as believers, we have actually agreed that Jesus is the Lord of our lives, that we, we um, follow him and we obey his word and we believe and trust in him. And when we can doubt him and we can disobey him, then we actually get to put ourselves back on the throne of our lives and that's a victory for him. Anytime he can take someone out of following God um, into sin, it gives him a, a foothold to then create havoc. You know, it's interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I got to travel to Nashville with our pastoral team to go to what's called the Q Conference. And this was a conference that brings together great Christian thinkers um, with people who really who, who understand culture. It's kind of where Christianity and culture intersect. And it was this wonderful opportunity to understand what's happening in our world and how do we speak into some of these different issues in our culture as believers. And one of the speakers there, he was a Catholic theologian who specializes in demonology and exorcism. Amazing. He, as you might know, the Catholic Church has always acknowledged the existence of demons, and they've always um, been practiced in exorcism. This has gone on for centuries. They, they very much take seriously the need to free people from, from demonic influence. Um, but this speaker in particular, his name, his name was Adam Bly. He trains Catholic priests how to do this, and he also then has a private practice of uh, helping people be free through exorcism of demonic possession. So as I was listening to him, what was most fascinating to me was actually not the stories of the people who have come to him for help or the methods that he's used to help free people from the stronghold of demon possession. What so impressed me was his unabashed confidence in the power of Christ. He spoke with such trust and authority on the power of Christ. And it was because he has seen it. He has seen behind the curtain of the spiritual realm. He has seen the battle. He has seen the power of Christ. And in fact, his first words out of his mouth was he said, don't be afraid. Jesus Christ is all powerful and he is in control. 
And it was like, oh, okay, now I can listen to what you have to say. I just needed to be reminded of that. And it was just amazing to, to hear a man speak with such authority in the power of Christ on this issue. Interestingly, what he believes is that temptation is Satan's number one strategy. He says that Satan delights tempting God's people to sin. And he, he delights in tempting us to feel discouragement, to feel despair, or to, to be faithless in our walk with Christ. However, it's in the battle of temptation that God actually fortifies his people and glorifies himself. It's so interesting. When we resist the devil in the battle of temptation, we actually act like Jesus. What did Jesus do in the battle of temptation? He resisted the devil. How? By quoting truth and scripture back to him. And he says that when we are in the battle of temptation and we resist the devil by standing firm on the word of God and obeying the word of God and proclaiming our faith in God, we actually become more and more like Jesus. And ironically, God uses Satan's schemes to strengthen us and spur us into spiritual maturity and faith through Satan's temptations. Isn't that just like God? And of course, we have to be strong in the Lord as we face Satan's schemes. We aren't strong enough on our own. We don't have the power on our own. But we are able to face these struggles as we rely on the Lord's power. Paul goes on then to describe the kind of struggles that we're going to face in verse 12. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There are two kinds of assaults that Satan employs on the world. There are direct assaults and there are indirect assaults. Direct assaults are assaults that come as attacks on human personalities by the power of a demonic spirit. I'm speaking of people who are not believers most of the time. They're not believers when these direct assaults come. And so this includes demonic possession, occultism, spiritism, black magic arts, astrology, fortune-telling, voodoo. When people open themselves up to demonic influences, they turn to darkness, and they can turn to darkness through entertainment, through information, through power, through comfort, or through escape. People turn and open themselves up to darkness, which invites demonic activity into their lives. Opening the mind to the occult and diminishing the power of the conscience invites demonic activity into the body. God has given us authority over our bodies. We are, we are powerful rulers over our own bodies. We can invite, as we do, the Holy Spirit to come into our bodies through faith in Christ, the gift that's given us. We, we say we believe, we open our hearts to God. He sends his Holy Spirit in. We invite the Spirit in. It's a conscious choice. We also have the power to ask a demonic spirit to flee. We have authority, and that is very important to know. Indirect assaults come upon believers through what the Bible calls the world and the flesh. The world, as we know, is that corporate expression of all human institutions. When the Bible speaks of the world, 
It's comprised of all of the philosophies and ideas and attitudes and goals and values, all of that. And the world assaults us all day long with very atheistic philosophies, which we get in books. It assaults us with very immoral ways of living, which we get through television. It assaults us with very sexual and lustful expressions, which we get through movies. It's like wherever we turn, the world is is shouting anti-Christian messages to us, especially in Oregon, right? We live in in a dark, spiritually dark place in the United States. Satan uses these messages to bombard our minds and to penetrate our, our, our emotions, to penetrate our attitudes, and ultimately to penetrate our wills so that we decide to do things to disobey God. How do we combat this? How do we combat the messages of the world? We have to immerse ourselves in the Word of God, which is what we've been doing all year together. We've been immersing ourselves in Ephesians. We've been listening to what God's been telling us about who we are and who we are in Christ. And we're doing exactly what God tells us to do, to be in the Word of God. And then to pray for a biblical perspective, to ask God to show us so that we can discern what's happening in our world and how it's impacting our thinking and how we relate the Word of God to our everyday lives. The second place where indirect assaults come at us is in the flesh. The flesh is the human urge to be self-centered and prideful. It's that place of willful defiance and rebellion against God's authority, and it resides in each one of us. All of us are predisposed to have a willful defiance against the authority of God, because we're all tainted with sin, and it's inherent to us. And so Satan knows that we are vulnerable to assaults on our flesh in the areas of pride and self-righteous independence from God. These are the places where we are um, very vulnerable to him. So how do we combat the temptations of the flesh? We have to obey God's word. We have to believe his word. We have to submit our feelings and our desires to the Lord in faith. When we read God's truth, his truth strengthens us. When we pray, his spirit comforts us. And when we submit our desires to the Lord, his love fulfills us like nothing else can. The thing about God is that he is always working in our lives to create balance and to create harmony and to create beauty. Satan is always working to create imbalance, disharmony, and destruction. God is always appealing to our faith. Satan is always appealing to our fears. And the devil tells us, um, Jesus tells us not to be afraid, not to be anxious, not to be troubled, because he is with us. And that's why Paul is going to remind us in verse 13 that he says, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may stand, be able to stand your ground after, and after you have done everything to stand. I like the way he says that. To stand your ground and after you have done everything, you're still standing. But notice this. He doesn't say if the day of evil comes. He says when the day of evil comes. There are specific times in your life when you are most vulnerable to temptation and you are going to find greater attack during these times. Let me share them with you so that you can know what those times are. The first is when you have first received Christ as your Savior, when you're a brand new Christian. Brand new Christians are such easy targets for Satan. And the Lord may allow this time of temptation as a way to test your faith. 
But also, Satan is working to keep your mind darkened and to keep you separated from God. And honestly, you don't have a lot of truth to strap on at that time. You're vulnerable. You don't know a lot. Your faith isn't strengthened. You have a lot. uh, You don't know how to wield the sword. You are so vulnerable when you're a brand new Christian. The second is that when you step out to serve the Lord in a new way, so if you get called to a new place of leadership, if you are serving in a new position in ministry, if there's something new that the God is doing in your life, um, that angers Satan. He will work harder to discourage you and try to make you quit. I cannot even begin to tell you the hardship that I experienced my very first year in this role as pastor. It was a year, 2013, that I will never forget. I can't believe I survived it. But I, will, I know where it was coming from. I know where it was coming from. And, um, and I'm thankful that I knew that because otherwise I might not be standing here today. The third is when you're afflicted, um, when you're down, when you're down emotionally, when you're down physically, when you're weakened in a weakened state, you are ripe for temptation. The fourth is when you've had some notable success, when you've had a victory, when you're feeling really, really good about an accomplishment. The Bible says pride goes before a fall. It's a time when you're very, very vulnerable to temptation. The fifth is when you're idle, truly an idle mind is the devil's playground. It is not good to be too idle because you avail your, being bored and idle can open you up to a lot of temptation. The sixth is when you're isolated from other believers. We are meant to live in community, in accountability, in relationship, and you're very susceptible to temptation if you're too isolated. And the seventh is when you're dying. When your body and your mind are weak, it's a time of great vulnerability. So these are the times of greatest vulnerability for us, and Satan is always looking for an unguarded moment when he can come in and establish a beachhead. But note that Paul doesn't tell us to put on the armor of God and then go out and fight the devil. He tells us very specifically that that we are to suit up so that we can stand our ground against his schemes. So here's the truth that I want to share with you is that Satan's strategy is to destroy God's people and thwart God's plans. That is his strategy. He wants to destroy you and me if we're God's people, and I know we are, and he wants to destroy God's plans for our world. But God, but God, he is powerful and he is in control. And you know what? Demons are all about authority. They're all about authority. So if you're a believer, you have the power of God residing in you by his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is the the spirit that you've given authority in your life. And, And that authority enables you to resist the devil and actually command him to leave you alone. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says, Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of suffering. What can you do then to prepare yourself for a future attack? Knowing his strategy is key. Knowing the enemy knowing that he's real, that he's a personal living being who's opposed to you because of your relationship with God, Um, knowing your identity, who you are in Christ, is important to knowing how to combat his schemes. But here's just two things that you could do preemptively. If you're in a season right now where you're not under attack, these are things that you can do to prepare yourself. The first thing is pray against temptation. 
Temptation comes as often a seed of thought. Temptation can come in your dreams. Ever wake up with like a really steamy dream and it just awakens things in you? You're like, where did that come from? Temptation can come in the most bizarre ways. So pray against it. Get out in front of it. And when a thought comes into your mind, don't toy with it. Don't give it any space to think about it or fantasize about it or dream about it or or concoct some way that you think you might act out but not really. Just immediately call it out and cast those thoughts away immediately and then repent of them. Don't let Satan get a foothold in your life. But the second thing is don't give the devil and his fallen angels too much attention. One of the things I've heard several, from several people is, why aren't we spending more time on this lesson? You know why? Because we don't want to give him that much attention. We have spent the majority of our year looking in the face of Jesus, and that's exactly what we are supposed to do. We, we are not under his authority. We belong to God. We are a child of God. And the stronger we become in our Christ-like character, the stronger we are with Christ, the less impact Satan has um, or his demons have on us to try to deceive us, to try to accuse us, or to try to tempt us. The stronger we get with Christ, the less of, a, of impact that he has, and I think the less he tries, quite frankly. If we're strong in Christ, he knows that he's not going to have a win with us. So next, Paul's going to teach us how to suit up in God's armor so we can stand firm in this battle. Since we are fighting against God's enemies in the spirit world, we need to have special equipment, and our, this equipment is both offensive and defensive. Christ, you need to know that Christ has already given us this armor. It already belongs to us because we believe in him. It's, we don't need to do anything to get it. We have it. We just need to put it on. Um, it's at our disposal, but we have to put it on our bodies. So in verse 4, he says, or verse 14, he says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You are going to have such a wonderful time in your groups going through all these parts of the armor and talking it through. And I just want to give you kind of a very quick overview because I've asked your leaders to, to give special time to the end part of your lesson today so that you can really apply this to your particular life. But I just want to make a few observations for you to think about. First of all, just notice that the first three pieces of the armor, the belt, the truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes, the gospel of of peace, each of them refer to something that's already been done for us. If we're believers in Christ, we have the truth of Christ, we have the righteousness of Christ, we have the peace of Christ. We have those. The last three pieces of equipment are things that we take up in the middle of, of battle. We take up our faith, the, the helm, shield of faith. We, we proclaim the helmet of salvation. We've, we're saved, even saved against sin today. Um, we can make different choices, and we swing the sword of the Word of God. These are these are very these are elements of of armor that we actually employ in the midst of a battle. But notice it's super important to get them in order because we can't swing the sh sword of the Word if we don't have the belt of truth. What are we swinging if we don't know the truth? So it's important that they're given in order, and um, we pay attention to that. 
Remember us, we know Paul was chained to a Roman guard day and night, so he's envisioning this armor of God as he's looking at a Roman soldier. I gave you a depiction of what a woman might look like in her battle gear, just to be able to make the transition for you. Um, So let's talk about them very quickly. The belt of truth. We buckle the belt of truth around our waist and everything is tied into this belt of truth. The truth is the doctrines and the principles of Scripture. But it includes knowing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. Jesus himself is the one in Colossians 2.3 that says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The truth is our weapon against discouragement and those feelings that we get of defeat and depression. When doubts attack our faith, the truth of Jesus and the words of Scripture are our first line of defense. We have to know the truth. We have to call out the truth. We have to stand on the truth. Truth is a reality, and because of that, it never changes. Truth is under attack in our culture today where we're, we ascribe to a, a relative truth. Truth is not relative. Truth is true, and it doesn't need to be updated. It doesn't need to be modernized, and it doesn't need to be revised In Hebrews 13.8, it says Jesus is the truth, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The second thing is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate fits over the heart and symbolizes God's protection over our well-being. This is the emotional core, the emotional center of who we are, and it's the place where we most often feel the attack in our emotional center. The righteousness of the breastplate is Christ's righteousness. His righteousness was imputed to us um, at the time of our salvation. So we stand before God, not in our own righteousness, but it's his righteousness. And the reason then that we can remain standing in the midst of attacks is not our own strength and merit, it's his strength and merit. The next thing is the feet fitted with the gospel of peace. So God has given us this gospel to stand on. When we're under attack, we go to the gospel. Who is Jesus and what has he done for us? We stand on that. But the imagery of shoes also implies that shoes are meant for walking. We don't just stand on the gospel as ourselves. We share the gospel. We go out. The great commission is that we spread the gospel around the world to others, that we give this good news away, and we're ambassadors of peace in the world. The shield of faith, this four foot by two foot piece of wood covered in leather, was what protected the soldiers from the enemy's um, fiery darts. And what's interesting is each of these pieces of shield were interlocking so the soldiers could interlock with the next soldier and they could make this wall of defense. For us, Jesus is our shield of protection. We have this protection through faith and we interlock to him by faith. Faith is our defensive weapon against the fiery darts of the enemy. The helmet of salvation, the helmet protects the mind, the intellectual center of the body. God can, when God controls our minds, Satan cannot lead us astray. We have to, though, give him control of our minds. Our minds need to be constantly aware. It's called the helmet of salvation because our, we need to constantly be remembered that we are saved from sin and death and that also what Jesus did to save us so that we stay in an attitude of worship and thanksgiving. Um, we have been saved from the punishment of sin because of death, Christ's death on the cross But then we also look forward to that day of ultimate salvation when he will execute his final judgment on sin, on Satan, and on evil. 
In the meantime, we also have to remember that we have a daily salvation. We can actually flee sin. We can actually turn and repent of sin. And the biggest way in which Satan tries to stir up fear in us is the fear of death, which is why I think it's the helmet of salvation. Because Satan actually knows what lies ahead of him. He, is, he is, has a very good reason to fear death because upon his death, he's going to be cast into hell for eternal punishment. So he's trying always to stir up in us fears of death that cause us then to, to, to be faithless or to sin. And so he is, it's important for us to remember that when we die, we go from life to life into the presence of Christ, and that is an assurance for us and also a time of great joy. Now, the sword of the Spirit, so far all the armor that we've described have been um, defensive armor. The sword of the Spirit is the only offensive piece of weapon. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Okay, the Word of God we know is Christ. John 1.1 tells us that the Word in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But the word is also the scriptures. And so the word of God is the scripture, truth of scripture. Hebrews 12.4 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. A physical sword, as we know, pierces the body. But the word of God pierces the heart. A physical sword wounds to hurt and kill, but the spiritual sword wounds to heal and give life. There is nothing more powerful than the actual words of God to stand against evil and temptation in your life. There's nothing more powerful. Jesus, as we know, quoted scripture to the enemy. He stood firm on the word of God. He knew the word of God. And so the more scripture that we store into our hearts, the more skilled that we will be at swinging that sword when the battles of life come. The truth is that spiritual warfare must be fought with the armor and weapons God provides. It must be fought with the armor that God provides and the weapons that he provides. We stand firm against the schemes of the devil by standing firm on the word of God. This is why it is so vital for us to be in Bible study together. You know, we have one more lesson, and then we have fellowship time. And then we're out for the summer. We will not gather again together until October 2nd in the fall. That's a really long time. If you're like me, you're not as diligent to stay in the Word of God, to be feeding yourself the Word of God throughout the summer. And that takes its toll on your, on your spiritual life sometimes. You don't feel as full of life as you do when you're engaged in a, in a study. I want to challenge you to get, collect yourselves with other women, find some friends, and stay in the Word of God. We're doing a summer study called Follow, and it's a walk through the Gospel of Mark. It's all walking through Jesus' life. And we're just sending you out into homes and into coffee shops and into places where you can gather just for seven weeks over the summer and stay in the Word of God in a more comfortable, relaxed, relational way, maybe sitting out in backyards or sitting in parks, just enjoying smaller groups of fellowship. And we're looking for leaders right now. We can't open registration to everyone until we have enough people who say they want to host a group or just want to lead a discussion. So your leaders will talk to you about that in your groups today. But I just want to encourage you. It is really vital that we stay in God's Word. This is so important. It's, it makes a difference. It's how we fight the struggles and the battles of life. 
Are you vulnerable today to attack? Are there areas of your life where you have left them unguarded, where there is a door open and a lion prowling? What is it? Will you call it out? Will you speak it before the Lord? Will you pray in advance of temptation? Will you um, be diligent to watch over your life? You are precious to God. He loves you. You are his beloved. And Satan would love to take you out. Will you turn your thoughts to the truth of God's word and stand firm? He has already given us all the armor for battle. We have everything we need for victory to stand against the schemes of the devil. So let's just agree together that we are going to stand firm on the word of God, that we are going to keep our hearts tethered to Christ, that we're going to rely on the Holy Spirit when times of temptation come, when times of trials come. I love that in 1 John 4, 4, Jesus says, he who is in you, he who is in me, is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus is all-powerful, and he is in control, and so we have nothing to fear when the schemes of the devil come against us. Let's pray. Would you stand, actually, and then let's pray. Father, we're standing because we are showing you that we are willing, able, and ready to stand firm on the truth of your word. We believe you. We believe in you. We acknowledge that you are all-powerful, that you rule, that you have all authority, And we have nothing to fear when the evil one comes against us because we know your word. We have hidden your word in our hearts this year, and we can stand on the truth of who we are in you and the fact that we belong to you. We are part of your kingdom. And yet, Lord, I want to acknowledge that there are many battles raging in this community of women. There are battles in marriage. There are battles with kids. There are battles in our hearts. There are temptations that are coming to us. There's doubt and shame and all kinds of things that the enemy is seeking to unearth us, seeking to cause us to doubt your goodness, seeking to cause us to disobey your word. Lord, it is a real battle. It is excruciatingly painful, and it, we just need your help. Lord, would you come beside us tangibly? Would we feel your presence? Would we, would we have your grace to be in the hard places? Would we stand on the truth of your word? Would you hold us steady in the storm so that we can actually move through these times of struggle even stronger in our faith and our assurance of who you are? Use even this to grow us in faith and spiritual maturity. That's what you do. You are so amazing. We love you, we trust you, and we desperately need you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.